never said in my report that Jens was innocent because he obviously did things. He was involved in some parts of that crime. You know, the term innocence was, was not something that I, I was concerned with or looked at. My job was to assess the reliability of the confession he made. And so I was very clear in my report that that's the exercise I'd undertaken. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of our podcast, The Jens Soaring Case, A New Verdict. In the first episode, we talked about the quite controversial role of the judge in the trial of Jens Soaring. Today's episode focuses on an issue that was instrumental in sending Jens Soaring to prison for 33 years, his confession to the double murder of Derek and Nancy Hasem. What is the controversy surrounding the confessions in this case all about? Jens Soaring claims to have made a false confession to protect his then-girlfriend from execution in the electric chair. She would have faced this sentence if the charge against her had been capital murder. Understandably, Jens's claims are viewed with suspicion by the public. After all, he continuously stuck to his allegedly false confession until his trial, and even lied to his parents for three years. Hello, Ralph. Thank you for providing our listeners with expert information about the case and the two legal systems in this episode. My pleasure. Everybody talks about true crime cases these days, but most of us don't know much about the various steps involved in a criminal trial, from investigation to indictment to final verdict, especially in capital murder cases like this one. Let's start with the crime. First of all, a division within the police, the homicide unit, investigates the facts, working very closely and very early on with the prosecuting attorney's office. A prosecutor is asked to draw up an indictment when all the facts have been gathered. This document is then sent to the criminal court, a division of the regional court, with the request to start the main proceedings for this indictment. The criminal court is staffed with a presiding judge and two associate judges, all of them appointed for life. First, the judges decide whether probable cause exists, meaning that a trial will likely result in a guilty verdict. Once the police have completed their investigation and the prosecutor agrees that probable cause exists, a trial date is set. If doubts about the accused exist, such as a flight risk, the accused is placed in pretrial custody. Because of this, there is a mandate for a speedy trial, meaning that the proceedings should not exceed three months. Then, the trial begins. Criminal court proceedings are usually relatively manageable in their complexity. As a rule, you have a verdict after a few days, resulting in an acquittal or a conviction. What about the American equivalent of that process? Well, there are differences between our system and theirs. A significant difference is that the U.S. has jury trials, where the authority to decide the final verdict rests not with the presiding judge, but with the 12 jury members. Those are people from all walks of life and different social backgrounds. Also, the entire trial procedure is different because it is adversarial, 
The defendant has a defense attorney who engages in a showdown with the prosecutor. Meanwhile, the jury members closely observe the performance of those two, follow their arguments, and evaluate the facts presented by the opposing parties. Ultimately, this adversarial procedure leads to either a guilty verdict or an acquittal. I had the opportunity to talk to some experts about confessions in general and, of course, about all these procedures you just described. We also discussed false confessions and various interrogation methods. Probably, most of you listening to us today can hardly imagine that someone would confess to a crime they didn't commit. Well, this happens all the time for entirely different reasons. False confessions are frequently motivated by relationship situations, the desire to protect someone or hide something. Under German law, prosecutors and judges are responsible for verifying the truthfulness of a confession at every stage of the proceedings. That is quite crucial. It is impossible to simply note that a confession has been made and assume that the case is closed. What is the significance of confessions, and how do we evaluate them if journalists like Sandy Hausman are still publicly campaigning today for Jens Suring's position to be clarified? Uh, I think it's important for people to know that wrongful conviction happens. And uh, we don't know how often, but certainly in the case of Suring, it was compelling. It certainly appeared that he served more than 30 years in prison for something he didn't do. And when we know that, perhaps we um, want to make some changes to our system of justice uh, just to make sure that people are fairly tried. Confessions are, of course, significant and highly relevant because most of them are true. A vast majority of people who confess do so because they have done something for which they are willing to take responsibility. In this respect, confessions constitute relatively significant circumstantial evidence. Problems arise when, regardless of the confession's evidentiary value, probing questions are not asked questions which might result in further investigations. What if you, as the judge, realize that a confession is false? If there is doubt and I have no other possibilities to prove the defendant guilty, I must acquit. In Germany, a defendant is allowed to lie. That's perfectly okay. One may say things that are not true. One does not have to incriminate oneself, but it is possible. Just because you incriminate yourself, however, does not mean that the court is exempt from checking whether the incriminating statements that are brought forward are actually true. There has hardly been a case where the personal perceptions of the spectators have been so split as in the trial of Jens Suring. An irreconcilable division is evident to this day. While one side sees Jens Suring as rightfully convicted, the other side feels a sense of injustice when they look at what happened back then. In Virginia, I spoke with an observer who attended the trial of Elizabeth Heisem in 1987 and of Jens Suring in 1990. Both trials were decisive in motivating Tammy Martin to become a law enforcement officer herself. Among other things, she later worked with Ricky Gardner, one of the investigators on the Haysom case. It was very disheartening. It was very disheartening for me because I don't feel like he got a fair trial. 
And I don't feel like that it was only the judge. I feel like the prosecution was involved as well. It was very difficult to listen to his confession as well as it was very difficult to listen to Elizabeth pleading guilty to accessory before the fact. I feel like everyone in the courtroom was shocked. The courtroom audience was in, in somewhat of an awe. And, and I don't think that the letters helped either one of their characters. Ralph, how relevant are these perceptions if they come from a private citizen? Not necessarily very relevant. The problem is that we're dealing with a very complex life situation where only someone familiar with all the details can form an opinion. Much is influenced and shaped by impressions, hearsay, expectations, timelines, and the cultural and social framework within which both trials occurred. Elizabeth and Jens were tried in a small town of about 3,000 residents, where opinions and subjective impressions develop quickly. They generally persist once they have become entrenched in people's minds. So basically, once I've concluded that the defendant is guilty, I stick to that view. If, on the other hand, I believe he didn't do it, then I tend to view everything resulting in a different outcome as unjust, unfair, and improper. From a German point of view, the trial of Jens Soaring was problematic, especially because of the media attention. The defendant's rights, for example, the presumption of innocence were violated, no doubt about that. But as far as the impressions of different trial observers are concerned, I think they are understandable, but I wouldn't overrate them. That is very interesting because my experiences and conversations in Virginia show that some people who were at the trial, like Tammy Martin, are still moved by what happened so long ago. Also, there are also some new findings, some new pieces of evidence that Yen Soaring will never be able to bring before a judge. The legal system in Virginia simply does not provide for the possibility of presenting new evidence in court once the defendant has been sentenced. The legal system in Virginia is very different from ours regarding the post-conviction review of decisions. That's simply a fact one must accept. However, I must point out that even in Germany, it is not easy to overturn a conviction. We have the option of reopening the case, but that usually presupposes presenting entirely new facts unavailable at the time of the guilty verdict. What's interesting is that in the Soaring case, early indications existed that his testimony contained mistakes, raising the possibility that his confession was false. Detective Superintendent Andy Griffiths, a British police officer, is an expert on interrogation methods. He explained to me which types of false confessions are common and which ones he considers relevant in the Soaring case. Regarding Jens Soaring, Andy Griffith explicitly says, I never said in my report that Jens was innocent because he obviously did things and he was involved in some parts of, of that crime because... You know, arguably, when Elizabeth came back to the hotel, if it was her that did it, you know, he then did certain things that helped sort of defray suspicion. So, you know, the term innocence was, was not something that I, I was concerned with or looked at. My job was to assess the reliability of the confession he made. And so 
I was very clear in my report that that's the exercise I'd undertaken. But of course, we then start looking at the factors that are relevant. And, and certainly, you then do look at the mindset of the investigators when they came to speak to him and the collection of evidence before that happened. Particularly when, when the two of them had absconded from the US, you know, in any investigation that detectives I've worked with would have been involved with, they would have focused on them as individuals and they'd have been speaking to their friends, they'd have been searching premises, gathering evidence, you know, because they definitely were in the frame because they'd run off. Um, no other reason to run off. So there was a lot of evidence gathering that could have been done in that um, intervening period. Of course, admitting to a crime you didn't commit sounds incomprehensible to most people, and that makes Jens's position very vulnerable. Yes, perhaps. But again, let's compare that with the situation in Germany. So here we're dealing with a voluntary confession, where there were no threats or promises. In fact, many confessions, and that is also true in Germany, come about under the expectation of a mitigating situation, for example, the defense attorney explains to his client that a conviction is likely. And if you confess and plead guilty to the charges, you get five years. But if you don't confess and you get convicted anyway, then you end up with eight or nine years. So you have people who say, well, to avoid getting eight or nine years, I'd rather confess even if I am not guilty so that I'll only get five years. This situation is relevant to understanding why Jens gave this false confession. He says he expected that, because of his father's status as a diplomat, he wouldn't face trial in the U.S., but in Germany instead. The expectation of a juvenile sentence not exceeding 10 years makes his decision to give a false confession plausible. Our interrogations or confessions in Germany evaluated differently for juveniles than in America. That always depends on the credibility of the confession. The younger people are, the more one must question their relation to reality. To assess the credibility, one examines the events surrounding the crime and the events after the crime. And it is crucial that the person describes the circumstances that precede and accompany the crime, and that in the course of the trial, these related facts are always reproduced with a certain consistency then you can quickly determine whether someone is lying or made something up. Or because of the richness and depth of detail, the statements have a strong relation to reality on which you can build. Do the circumstances you mention also include the social environment and what the defendant's family and friends say about him? Does all of this count too? Exactly. For example, when you hear statements like, he's never done that before. I don't consider him capable of something like that. That can't be the case at all. He's been put under pressure by someone. He's guided by false perceptions or expectations. If that's the case, then you have to look into it. Then you have to look into it precisely at that point. Jens Soering says the investigators in the United States never questioned his family. Yes, that is incomprehensible to me. Because, of course, in the case of such a crime, but also in the case of almost every other crime, the social environment is examined closely in the German system. Because that's what it's all about. Why does someone come to commit such a crime? And often, or actually, as a rule, 
Nobody is who he is for no reason but because, over a long time, his social environment has made him into what he is today. Personalities are dependent on their development, and every offender is an offender only because circumstances have led to him to becoming one. Of course, he always has the choice to distinguish between right and wrong, but not in the same way as someone whose personal development was free of violence, shaped by love and affection and well-balanced, intense friendships. This should have been closely looked into, and unless he invoked his right to refuse to testify, this person should also have been called to the witness stand regarding these circumstances. What I think is vital regarding the case of Yen Suring is that considering his age, one should have paid attention to inconsistencies between his confession and the situation that was found at the crime scene. Personally, I think the confession was convenient for the investigators. This crime had a lasting impact on this small town, Bedford, and there was tremendous pressure to solve the crime. So it's understandable that the investigators were relieved to have this confession. With the crime solved, the community could regain a sense of peace and security. Of course, that is different from the correct way of doing things, where you have to shed preconceived notions and biases. In such a situation, you have to say, okay, now I have a confession, but now the real work begins. You have to ask, did it really happen that way? And then you've got the defendant's age and background. And most of all, you have Elizabeth Haysom, who also had strong motives to commit the crime. You have to investigate all angles and alternatives to make sure she didn't do it and always question yourself in the process. This is definitely how we would have done it in Germany, even back in 1985. I heard the same thing from several people I spoke to in Virginia, not just Tammy Martin, who observed the trial as a private citizen, but also John Grisham, retired FBI agent Stanley Lepecas, and Sheriff Chip Harding. They all think that the confession was convenient because it made things easier. Also, this young German, Yen Soering, came across as very arrogant. Convicting him was easier than convicting the victim's daughter, who came from a local and highly respected family. Yes, but I also think there are a lot of subconscious factors which are, of course, based on long-held convictions. You can see this sort of dynamic in the southern U.S., but also in Germany. We've got anti-Semitic prejudices. They have racism. Those things are ultimately ingrained in people, influencing their decisions in such a trial. The interrogations in England lasted 16 hours and extended over a period of four days. And even today, the circumstances of these interrogations are subject to criticism, since there are only partial recordings of the statements of Jens Soaring. And the confession itself wasn't tape-recorded, contrary to other interrogations at the time. The necessary technology was available, but they didn't use it. On other occasions, investigator Ricky Gardner took handwritten notes. Excerpts from those notes were used in Jens's trial, showing what Jens supposedly said. Plus, Jens did not have a lawyer present when he made his statements. Those are huge procedural mistakes. First of all, let's start with the timing. It makes a difference whether I start an interrogation with the goal of obtaining a confession, which I don't have yet. Particularly in kidnapping cases, 
It may well be that these interrogations take longer than they should because you want to achieve another goal, namely freeing the kidnapping victim. In this case, a murder case, what you just told me, Daniela, is unacceptable. These long hours of interrogation adversely affect concentration and performance, not just with Jens, but also with the investigators who have to write everything down. What is totally unacceptable is that the confession cannot be proven on tape or through a detailed transcript of the interrogation, because every word counts. A tape recording is better than a transcript because it captures things such as voice, intonation, and sound which allow conclusions about emotionality and the situation. There is the probability that Ricky Gardner misunderstood and misinterpreted words and even excluded content. This was a procedural mistake, one we would definitely never make, and I'll put it that way now. You would also put it that way regarding every other investigator, just so that nobody gets the idea we have an explicit bias against Ricky Gardner. No, I'm referring to the person who took the confession, the investigator. I also talked with Andy Griffiths about a quote from Elizabeth's confession. There was this one sentence where she said, rather flippantly and facetiously, I did it myself and I got off on it. Andy explained that this would not be considered a false confession because the interrogator listens and pays attention to voice and intonation. He would pick up on the sarcasm. Like I said, a cardinal error. Unfortunately, there's no other way to put it. And I'm amazed it could happen after all. Again, we're not dealing with theft or a minor robbery, but with one of the most brutal crimes in that part of the country for the past 30 to 40 years. And then you get a call and fly from Washington to London. Then you sit down and take handwritten notes. I can't understand that. There is one more thing. Under German law, the recorded confession would be presented to the defendant, and he should read everything carefully and confirm with his signature that the confession is his confession. And then, the accused still has the opportunity to clarify contradictions and misunderstandings. That someone takes his handwritten transcripts, which he didn't check with the accused, on the plane and builds an indictment on them. I also have two nice statements from Andy Griffiths, who has commented on this in more detail. Want to learn more about Jens Sering and the Hazel murders? Chuck Reed, the leading investigator at the time, has compiled exclusive material for you and commented on it. Previously unpublished evidence, excerpts from trial files in Sering's diary, as well as explosive lab results. Get his report at www.sering-case.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. There were 16 hours of, of interrogation. Only about, I think it was 12 or 14% were recorded, audio recorded. So the rest was transcripts, um, some of which were handwritten. So, you know, there, there's some practical difficulties with the materials. Um, you're going through considering, reading back again, thinking again. So the process took a number of months to go through. Um, and I was then trying to assess the reliability of what he'd said um, versus the, the other evidence. And, and, you know, what we knew as facts. And of course, we did know certain things as facts. And, and that, that, that's what I assessed his confession against, its reliability. In other words, 
you know, from what he said, how does that match what we know happened? In other words, what the crime scene told us and, and, and that type of thing. And, and that was the basis of my conclusion looking at those issues, really. It's quite clear from early on in the interviews, from the questions, that Ricky Gardner considers it clear that Jens has done it. Uh, and of course, what, what we don't have access to is comments before the interview. And again, Jens has made mention of the fact that he, he said something about them. Uh, well, I'll tell you what's happened or something like this. And uh, so, but Ricky Gardner's mindset was clearly what I would describe as confirmatory in the interviews. So um, the things that Jens said were accepted and not probed or checked against other facts. And again, one of the comments I made in my report was that Jens was charged within four days of um, the, the interrogations. So that it just shows you practically to go away and, and research what he'd said and consider how viable it is against the crime scene. Um, that, that's quite a lengthy process and it doesn't appear that it really took place. And what do you say about the fact that the defendant, Jens Soering, says that he got his information about the crime scene from Elizabeth, or most likely from her? Well, that would be true if you follow his retraction of the confession. But I wanted to go back to what was just said. Interrogation techniques, or interrogation in general, is very complex. You have to learn these techniques and methods. In Germany, they have explicit training on how to do that. Again, I don't want to criticize Ricky Gardner as a person. After all, this was his first homicide case and he was still at the beginning of his career. So many mistakes where we say, how could this happen? What technical aspects were not observed certainly have to do with the inexperience and the lack of professionalism at the time. That's Andy Griffiths also told me that, because in England, for example, he created precisely these training programs for interrogation methods and taught them for decades and further developed these concepts. And he also pointed out to me that it is problematic to blame people from today's point of view because the standards back then were also quite different. The same applies to the technology, that is the discrepancy between the navigation system and the speedometer reading, which is very easy to understand today. The discrepancy with the speedometer reading could already be understood back then. Today, however, one could, for example, view the video recording from the hotel. In other words, there are numerous technical aspects that are incomprehensible today because the technology has developed. Of course, Yen Suring's descriptions at the time also differed in multiple points from those at the crime scene. And yet he apparently had knowledge of details at the crime scene. And that, of course, still puts his statements in a strange light today. Assuming he did it. In that case, different processes take place in a person's mind. And especially if you have done something, you actually know that the description of what you have done is not completely identical with what objectively happened. And again, that has to do with human nature and the way we process things. In this respect, it is not completely unnatural that one does not know, for example, whether someone was wearing jeans or not. So these are not things where you say none of this can be true because of that. Former investigator Chuck Reed also said that what ultimately got Jens convicted was his big mouth. 
But of course, the false confession also played a crucial role. And today, we know the consequences of a false confession. 33 years in prison. Retired Sheriff Chip Harding has a clear opinion on that. And so they assume she'd have come downstairs. Now, some of it, some of this that we were saying is just based on Yenz's alleged false con confession. And I think if his confession, which appears to be false, he'd have got his information from Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, enough to try to, you know, flush out to, to make a confession. But in his confession, here you got a, a brilliant young man at this point. He's trying to convince investigators that he did it. And he's still getting all this wrong because he didn't know every little detail. He points out that in the U.S., if you make a false confession, it's easier to go to jail than there is a chance of ever getting out. When you look at the totality of the evidence, I think he's guilty of being an accessory after the fact. And he would have gotten a very short sentence for something like this. And I think it's just a darn shame that the people of Bedford County, and not just the sheriff's office, I think from what I understand from talking to people that talk to people in Bedford that, you know, paid attention to this trial, they don't want to hear it anymore. This was a wound that had salt in it. You know, this was a well-established, well-thought-of family. And they convicted this German guy, who was not just a German guy, but who also acted very arrogant. I got a good friend who was a reporter there and said it, that, that Soren didn't help himself with his own, you know, the way he came across. And they don't want to hear it. A jury, in the words of uh, Ricky Gardner, who's now, when he retired, he was second command, he was recorded on video saying, this case was decided by a jury over 30 years ago. What difference does it make today? Well, it makes a lot of difference to Ian Soaring, and it should make a lot of difference to the justice system of Virginia. Ralph, please explain to the listeners the differences between Germany and the US, particularly with regard to a life sentence based on a confession or even a false confession. Well, in the US, Life in prison usually means life in prison. That means it's quite possible that I'll be in prison for 30, 40, or 50 years until I die. This is out of the question in Germany. In Germany, life imprisonment means a minimum of 15 years. This can be extended in the case of the serious nature of the crime. But otherwise, after 15 years have been served, it is automatically checked whether a release on parole might be justified. If there are reasons to believe that the prisoner will not commit any more crimes, he'll be set free. And yes, that is the big difference between the two countries. So, as far as this is concerned, Soaring's statements about his release are true, that it is really unusual that he was paroled, considering his two life sentences. Exactly. It is very unusual. If one is sentenced to two life terms in the United States, one is almost never released on parole unless there is an actual declaration of innocence, like a pardon. I'm curious now about your experience on the subject of false confessions. Do they occur frequently in Germany? And are there statistics on this? Is it a field of research? Of course, criminologists are always researching this, but there are no proper statistical materials. 
And it has to be said in Germany, too, false confessions do happen. In the first episode, I mentioned the case of a well-known German actor who falsely confessed to a robbery in order to protect his wife. So there are false confessions even in Germany. But because every judge and prosecutor is obliged to check the truth of this confession, the actual numbers should be limited. But it does happen. I already mentioned that many people confess to something they didn't do more or less out of the fear of being convicted, expecting a lower sentence if they plead guilty, or also because they want to protect other people. Another conceivable motive might be that a confession has been bought. Because sentences in Germany are much shorter than in the U.S., it is not unusual that someone might confess to something he did not do for, say, 1 million euros. Then he spends seven or eight years in prison, knowing he can lead a carefree life afterward. The author, John Grisham, has a very clear position regarding that confession from back then. Well, so would we. We have no idea. Uh, there's so many, um, there's so many people in prison in this country, over 2 million, and which is the highest rate of incarceration anywhere in the world, I think. Uh, it's ridiculous the number of people we have in prison. And it is, uh, it's impossible to review that many cases and to determine how many are innocent. Uh, there, are some, there are some estimates uh, that you see occasionally, but they're just sort of like wild guesses. One estimate is uh, 2%, uh, which would be, you know, 40,000. One estimate is 10%, which would be 200,000 people who are innocent in prison. Uh, but nobody really knows, and we will never know, because, again, no one has the time or the money uh, to go back and review all these cases. But there are, it is, it is safe to say... In this country, there are tens of thousands of innocent people in prison because of wrongful convictions. Jens Soering has stated for years that he counted on some form of diplomatic protection because of his status as a diplomat's son. Not immunity, but limited protection. People always get that wrong in this context. How realistic is that with regard to an expected juvenile sentence in Germany? because Soaring assumed that he would be transferred to Germany based on his confession and would then spend a few years in juvenile detention. Yes. First of all, we must explain that Jens was not a youth, but we must differentiate. The age of a juvenile ends with the completion of the 18th year of life. From 18 to 21, we have a designation of adolescent. And then the court has the choice of deciding whether adult law or juvenile law is applied to the adolescent. In case of doubt, juvenile law is always applied. And with regard to Jens, who was just 18 years old, one would almost certainly have been tried as a juvenile. And then he would have been sentenced according to juvenile law in Germany. And the maximum sentence is 10 years. Here, too, it is important to remember that juvenile criminal law is not about punishment, but about education. The goal of a juvenile sentence is to create the educational prerequisites so that the juvenile, in this case, 
the adolescent, does not commit comparable acts in the future. However, in Jens Soring's case, due to the crime's extraordinary brutality, it is not unlikely that one would have gone into the upper range here and handed out a 10-year juvenile sentence. We've already heard Chris Fabricant in episode one. He criticizes the fact that the American justice system, to put it bluntly, places more value on controlling mouthwash than on supervisory bodies that, for example, investigate false confessions, false testimony, and methods that unfairly affected the accused. Ralph, does someone who has been imprisoned, like Mr. Soaring, have to let such points rest at some point? If new, previously unknown facts emerge that were not available at the time, then you can always take it up again under German law and ultimately be rehabilitated. However, if the facts were available then but have been incorrectly assessed and evaluated, then one should let it rest at some point. Thanks again for having been with us in this episode. You're welcome. This was the second episode of our podcast series, The Case Against Jens Soering, A New Verdict. We discussed the interrogation methods used at the time in the Soaring case and the credibility of his confession, which he still claims today was a false confession. In the next episode, the focus is on the key witness, Elizabeth Hasem, and her testimony in the trial of Jens Soaring at the time. How credible was she? How should your close relationship with the prosecutor at the time be assessed? Subscribe to the podcast and never miss a thing. Thanks for listening. You're Daniela Hillers.